Okay, I'm going to uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into um, finishing up last week's discussion on how a disciple uses money differently. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to come to you right now, and once again acknowledge that you are the supreme owner of everything that's in our life. Um, you, you give us the very breath that we breathe right now. Um, you're sustaining us and, and the creation around us. Uh, God, we acknowledge that the money that's sitting in our bank accounts right now, sitting in our, in our wallets and our purses right now, ultimately belongs to you. And, and we also recognize that you don't need it. Um, you're fully capable of accomplishing your promises and, and, and your desires for this world without our money. Um, so, God, I pray that, that we would continue to understand that reality. And that we would understand you call us to reevaluate our money when we come to you for salvation. Not because you need it. But because you want us to understand how desperately we need you. And not the things that this world offers. So God, I pray that you would continue to free us as a church from being chained to our income. God, that we would live in the reality that you are a father who loves us, who provides for our needs. Who can feed us without our money. Who can clothe us without our money. And God, I pray that we would continue to to examine scripture, to know how to use money in a way to show lost people that money is not what's important to us, that it's Christ. God, I pray that you challenge each one of us individually to, to take the responsibility that's necessary to evaluate how we're spending our money, how we're giving our money, how we're saving our money, that we would be working towards a A mindset where all three of those areas in our life are honoring you and uh, serving people around us. So God, I pray that you teach us this morning through your word, that the Holy Spirit would encourage and convict. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, just to kind of recap again, we're um, really on part four of a church that treasures Christ, not money. Um, it's actually... I guess the sixth week that we've talked about it, because we've had to split some of these into two parts just because um, we've run out of time. Kind of recap, we said a disciple sees money differently when he comes to Christ for salvation. That when, when the Holy Spirit calls us and draws us to Christ, that it, it causes us to view money differently. We see it differently. When we looked at two examples in Scripture, uh, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, Jesus says, sell everything, follow me. The rich young ruler says, no. I like my money. Um, Jesus says it's virtually impossible for a rich man to get saved. But then he gives us hope that rich men do get saved because we see the salvation of Zacchaeus. Jesus interacts with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, who, who's had, who has more money than most of us will ever see in our life, uh, begins to sell it and begins to give it away. And just, just gets rid of possessions and money um, because Christ has radically changed his perspective on this world, on life, and on the future. Um, so a disciple sees money differently. And, and we've also seen that, that a disciple values money differently. He values it differently. As we come to Christ, we begin to need it differently. Um, we've got a father who takes care of us. 
Um, we, don't, we don't need to rely on money in the same way that a lost person does. And we've seen also how a, a disciple invests his money differently. And we looked at the gospel, the gospel plan. Jesus says, I'm not coming back until the gospel has gone, gone around the world. Um, and then we saw in Revelation, the gospel is going to go around the world. Which reminds us that, that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need, like the, the end of the world doesn't hinge on whether you evangelize and make disciples or not. It's going to happen. If you don't do it, someone else will do it. It will happen. And we looked at the account in the um, book of Esther where, where Mordecai comes to her and says, Look, Israel's about to be destroyed. You've got to, you got to go to the king on our behalf and fix this. And then I love what he says. He says, if you don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. God will use somebody else. And, I, you know, Mordecai could have easily said, Esther, if you don't go talk to the king, we're all going to die. But Mordecai, even in his understanding of what scripture he did have, did have says, no, we can't all die because God's made promises to us that he hasn't fulfilled yet. So we, we clearly don't die in a couple of weeks, which means if Esther doesn't do it, someone else is going to do it. So... We have a responsibility to, to make disciples because we've been commanded to do it. It's not that the end of the world hinges on whether we do it or not. We already know somebody does it. Somebody gets serious and makes disciples. And we were, we were, me and Lauren were at Snowbird this week, and Brody was talking about the importance of missions, and he was throwing out a lot of stats. He was saying that right now in, um, I think it's North American churches, for every $100 that people in the church make, about five cents goes to, to global missions. For every $100 that you make, about five cents, about a nickel, goes to global missions. Which means there's, there's, there's two bad things about that. One, individuals aren't giving enough. But then secondly, churches that receive the money aren't prioritizing the money that they receive properly. You know, uh, Brody threw out a number. I forget what it was. He said, I think I shared this in some context with you guys too, that if every Christian gave 10%, then we would have, I don't think it was in these notes. It was like $46 million or billion dollars extra that we could use. But then I was talking with some guys at Snowbird. I was like, unfortunately, that's not, that, that's not, that wouldn't just fix the problem. Because even if everybody that's a Christian gave 10%, you're still relying on church leadership to make good decisions to get that money around the world globally. Unfortunately, if everybody started giving 10%, more than likely churches would just spend it on their church, increase programs, increase buildings, and we would still be failing to get the gospel Around the world. So there's two, there's two issues that we want to see fixed here in our church. We want to see you guys giving cheerfully, not under compulsion, but out of a willing heart. And if that ends up being 10%, if that ends up being 20%, whatever it ends up being for you personally, we want to see people in this church giving radically based on the Holy Spirit's work. But then as a church, we want to be extremely responsible for the amount of money that comes in here. And we want someone to sit down and look at our budget and say, the gospel is really important here. You know, it, it, it's so important that, that this church isn't even thinking about building a building and, and constructing normal stuff that you might find in a church. We'll meet in this park for as long as we need to, to keep costs as, as low as possible 
so that more money can go globally. Why? Because the gospel doesn't fail. You know, I shared this with you. You can invest in, in, a, in a condo development program going on in Alabama and think, hey, if this works, I'm going to make a lot of money. And I know someone who did something similar and lost all their money. You know, didn't get a return. Didn't get the, the parking lot that they started building these condos in still doesn't have condos. And they're not going to build any condos. And all the money that was invested is gone. So every time we invest money, typically there, there's, a, there's a clause there where you're not sure if it's really going to give you any return on it. But with the gospel, we know we get return. We've seen the book of Revelation. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue worship Jesus. So we can confidently invest. We can give our money to gospel purposes knowing that it works. And then last week we started looking practically at how we need to use our money differently. I told you last week we have three different ways we can, we can use our money. We can spend it, we can save it, or we can give it. And ultimately you will do all three of those things with your paycheck. You will spend some of it. You will save some of it most likely. And hopefully you will give some of it. But we want to make sure we bring all three of those into balance with what Scripture has to say. What do we do as a disciple of Christ in the area of spending? What do we do as a disciple of Christ in the area of saving? And how do we give like a Christian should? I told you last week too that those of you with less money, because we all make different, different salaries in here, different wages. Those of you with less money have great responsibility because you don't have a whole lot. Which means you have to be very intentional and careful about where your money goes because you don't have a lot. You have to be very frugal. You have to really think through every transaction that happens if you're going to strive to give money away. Because if you're not careful, you won't have any money to give away. But then the flip side, those of you that have a lot more money than others in here, you also have great responsibility because there's greater accountability because God is giving you more. He expects more. He expects you to be able to do more with your money because you have more of it to, to do something with. So everybody in here has great responsibility with the amount of money that they've been given. Um, we looked a little bit last week about what our priorities should be, and I began to challenge you to think through the priorities in your life. We talked about how we have responsibility to, to, to use our money for self-sustaining purposes. We have to eat. We have, to, we have to have shelter, typically. We have to have clothing. Like There are things that we spend our money on because self-sustaining stuff is, is, is a priority. You know, like we need to eat, so we gotta, we got to buy groceries. we gotta, we got to get food some way. Um, we looked at those of us that have family members, that, that that goes up even further because you're not only sustaining yourself, you're sustaining a wife, potentially kids. Um, we looked at education for some of you being a priority right now. You've got you've to think through money and how you can use it for educational purposes. We also looked at um, fun being, being a priority in our life. That, that we are given the privilege and, and the opportunity to enjoy God's creation. You know, like, um, there's a responsibility to have fun with your kids, to be a good shepherd of your family, to take your wife out, to, to engage in developing that relationship. So it's not that fun and entertainment and anything that's good that we enjoy is bad. Those things need to have priority in our life, but obviously they need to have their proper place in our life as well. Okay, so then we looked last week at spending, saving, and giving and how the Holy Spirit uses all three for sanctification. Like, the way we spend money is the way the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. And I said specifically last week, 
How we spend our money gives us the chance to demonstrate to a lost world what's important to us. As we continue to mature spiritually, the Holy Spirit works in our heart. We begin to spend our money in a way where lost people can obviously see what we value, what's important to us. How, how we spend our money gives us the chance to fight covetousness and greed. You personally can fight greed and covetousness, which we're told to in Scripture. We're told, Paul tells us to kill it, to put it to death, to kill greed and covetousness in your life. So you fight that, you work against that in how you spend your money. You sit down and evaluate, how do I spend my money? How do I fight covetousness? And we looked at some practical ways how you, you can fight covetousness in your life last week. We said that for some of us it means cutting out online um, shopping where we just kind of browse and, and, and wish that we had certain things that we don't have. Some of us get magazines sent to us in the mail, um, catalogs where we can order stuff, and it becomes a source of temptation to covet and potentially spend money that we don't have on things that we don't need. So there's different ways to kind of fight covetousness in how we spend our money. We said secondly that there's... Um, ways for the Holy Spirit to use how we save money as a form of making us more like Christ. So that how we save money gives us the chance to show others that God is our security, not our savings account. That, that we save money, yes, but we don't save it as though the savings account is what takes care of us. It's a Father who provides for us, who has riches that, that we can never store up in a savings account. And we said also how we save our money gives us the chance to be good stewards as we make future plans for using God's money. You see, if we develop this mindset, oh, I'm supposed to give my money. Like, at the end of the month, I should always be at zero. Like, I need to spend it to take care of myself, and I need to give it because other people need it. You know, I mean, you could always say, well, if I've got money in my savings, there's people that need clothes or, or water or shoes, and I need to give that money away and try to break even every month. But we said that really limits you in some future bigger things. To do for God. And we used the illustration last week that you will never go on a missions trip. You will never go overseas if you're always breaking even at the end of the month. For some of us, you know, if we plan to go to Uganda next summer with Chris as a church, like we want to take a group. Some of us need to start saving now for that. You know, I told you it may cost $2,000, $2,500 to pull off a trip like that for you individually. Most of us don't just have that sitting around at the end of the month. We have to kind of think ahead. So saving allows us to make future plans in how we want to serve God, serve the gospel, and do different things for God's glory with it. Um, told you individually, you have to kind of work through, is my money best served for God in my savings account or out of my savings account? And, and trying to find a healthy balance for you individually. Um, said that you, know, you do have a responsibility to save money to take care of your family. Kind of gave you some, some suggestions that, that people offer. Um, you, you, you save for the possibility of unemployment. A lot of people try to work um, to have at least three months worth of bills um, in savings so that if something unexpected happened, you had that kind of to take care of your family. And also doing something similar for just an emergency situation, you know car blows up and you don't have a car anymore and um, you, you, know, you got to fix the transmission or whatever, like having some reserve money for that, it's just a, it's a, it's a wise way to be a steward of what God gives us. Um, and then this week, getting into giving, which is really where we want to camp out and we wanted to, to dedicate all of the day to talk about that. 
um, some practical ways that as a disciple of Christ, we need to strive to give our money in a way where the Holy Spirit's sanctifying us in that. In my notes, I put down that um, giving our money forces us to be disciplined in our life. For most of us, in order to give, we must budget. For, for most of us, if we're going to get real serious about giving, it's going to require us to sit down, take some time to figure out how much do I need to spend monthly on food, on rent, on gas, so that I can theoretically figure out how much money I can give away each month. And I challenge each one of you individually to be doing that in the context of this church because we need to know from you how much you're going to be able to give so that we can make plans accordingly for how to use it. Okay? So giving our money forces us to be disciplined in our life. Secondly, giving our money reminds us that what we have is not ultimately ours. Giving is, is certainly a way that we fight covetousness and greed because as we give it away, every time you give, there should be kind of a, a, a decrease in that stinginess, that tight-fistedness that we're so prone to because of what we're born into and that being sin. Giving money is a way to practically fight covetousness and greed in your own life. It's a reminder that ultimately what you have is not yours. You're called to be a steward of it. That's what God expects us to do. He gives us resources, gives us money. He's given all of us different amounts. He expects us to be stewards of it. And thirdly, giving our money is a practical way for us to focus on others above ourselves. Giving our money is a practical way for us to focus on others above ourselves. That's Philippians 2. Value the needs of others. Look to the needs of others just as you look to your own needs. And so as we give, it's, 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 it's a way for us to be sanctified. The Holy Spirit uses our giving because in that we're beginning to value other people more than ourselves. I was thinking about this this week as Lauren and I went to Snowbird just kind of meditating and thinking about the notes that, and stuff that I wanted to go over this week that I didn't get to last week. Um, and I really began to think that, that as a Christian, if, if all this is true, everything that we're saying is true, if this, is, if this really is supposed to happen in our life, then as a Christian, it necessitates there be reduction in areas where we were handling money before we were saved in comparison to how we use it now. And, and I was trying to think, like, how do I illustrate what I'm, what I'm thinking here? If you find out, um, find out you're going to have a baby, you're pregnant, okay? You find out, like, a new person is coming into your family. And I was texting Ben about this early this morning. Um, ben and Andrea, before they ever had kids, they're, they're spending money in a certain way. There are things that they're doing in a certain way. They're saving money, giving money, spending money. As soon as they find out they're having their first kid, I'm assuming that meant that y'all sat down and had to evaluate your money situation, right? Anybody that has kids that didn't do that to some degree, sit down and say, okay, we're going to have to change some things. I did some... Uh, this would be amazing if you knew this. Anybody know how much... It cost you like your first year that you had a kid to like take care of that kid. You have any? Uh, 
hundred dollars per month. It's like twelve hundred dollars. That's that's pretty conservative. Okay, I I mean I just did I just I just looked up I mean I didn't do like extensive research. Um, I found and, and again and some of this I mean this is also from a a, a non Christian perspective, but I heard up, upwards as much as um, several thousand dollars you know to take care of a kid, and I heard some conservative estimates of. Um, four to five thousand to take care of a kid. I mean, if you if you did it in twelve, then we're going to have you host a, um, uh, a financial class for all married couples with young kids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what all they were figuring. They were just kind of, um, you know, this is some some. The point being that when you have a kid, there has to be some evaluation. Okay, there's a new person coming into our family that's going to need money that ain't bringing in any money, you know? Like, even when you get married, a lot of times you marry someone who also has a job. You know, we, when Lauren and I got married, we knew that she was going to have a job. So we didn't really have to sit down and evaluate too extensively where our money was going because, I mean, we were bringing, I was bringing in more money into my family by marrying her. Uh, when you bring in a kid, ain't no extra money coming in, and there's a high demand for the amount of money they need. So obviously that necessitates, okay, I've got to reduce. And Ben said one of the first things for him was the amount of money they spent on entertainment. When you bring a kid in, entertainment money goes down so that money can then be used for the child. I would have, and I've heard other people say this too, and I was spending time with Robert Snowbird, and he said that um, you know, the amount of times that they eat out has gone way down because of kids in their life. You know, it's, it's obviously way more expensive to take three people out to eat than it is to take two people out to eat. And again, the third person ain't bringing in any extra money. So there are things that, that, a, that a married couple has to evaluate. Okay, we got to reduce this because we have to prioritize someone new here. I think that same mentality has to happen as a believer. That coming to Christ and the whole aspect of giving the gospel, taking care of people in need... It's almost like bringing a baby into your family. It's a whole new priority that wasn't there before. It wasn't there before. So, and, and, and obviously this is different for those of us that got saved before we were making money. You know what I mean? Um, I never experienced a lost life where I spent money and then had to compare it to Christian life. But the, but the, 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 the thought process is the same. That if I'm a believer... If I follow Christ, the way I spend money has got to be different. It's got to be different. And I've started thinking through it in terms of, let's say you make $30,000 a year. The way you, the way you use that $30,000 ought to be drastically different than how a lost person who makes $30,000 a year spends it. In the same way that if Adam and Jen and me and Lauren made the same amount of money, theirs is going to be different because of two kids. Right? Like they have their their elements different. They have two kids. What I want you to understand is is our element is different because we follow Christ. That's why we have to evaluate where reduction needs to happen in certain places that we spend money right now because of the element of Christ. Because of the element of Christ, Christ has to radically change how we're spending money. 
We see it all through the New Testament. And you notice there, a disciple learns that the why of giving is more important than the act of giving. A disciple learns that the why of giving is more important than the act of giving. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why do we give our money? Why do we give our time and our resources? We do it so that lost people will ultimately glorify God as they observe how we do things. The why of giving is way more important than the actual act of giving. It's not, the, the goal is not to just have you guys start giving in that box every week. Whatever amount, just we, we want everybody giving something. That's not the goal. That's not the goal. God doesn't need that. The goal is that you become so radically transformed by the Holy Spirit that in doing that, it begins to confuse people out here. And that all through the week, as you use money differently, that they ought to be able to look at it and say, I mean, I know Jason's got to make about this amount of money, but the way that he lives doesn't seem to measure up with the amount of money that I know he makes. Like he ought to live in something bigger. He ought to have more toys. He ought to he ought to eat out more. He ought to be going on vacation more. Like they ought to look at it and say, you would think that he would have a lot more money to do stuff. I mean, he does stuff. I mean, he seems that I mean, he's got a nice house. He got you know he gets to do stuff with his family. But you'd think he'd be able to do more. Lost person ought to be completely confused as to why you're not doing more. And maybe it even leads to conversations where it's like. Jason, like, I know the job. I know where you work. Like, I know what the average person makes there. Like, why, why, do, you, why do you choose to live where you live? And then all of a sudden it's, well, um, you need to understand, like, you know, these are some priorities that are in my family's life. Like, um, we're supporting Chris Henson, who's doing work overseas in Uganda. We're doing this. We're doing this. We're doing this. And it opens up conversation. And, and, and even in sharing, and this is where... There's balance in the fact that I think that there's, there's a need to communicate to lost people that we're doing stuff. But doing it out of the right motivation where we're not seeking to, to build ourselves up and promote ourselves. Because even in doing that, Jason can say, yeah, I, I try to give this amount of money away or this percentage of my money away. But you need to understand that the reason I'm even doing that is because of the work the Holy Spirit's done in me. That God has radically changed my life. That Jesus Christ is what's important in my life. So you can, you can share Good stuff that you're doing as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit without promoting yourself and being guilty of pride. I mean, this, this verse is a, is, is, is a perfect example that we're supposed to do stuff to where lost people know that we're doing it. Because we want them to see that God is what's important in our life. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Here's the balance. 
Here's the balance. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Back to Matthew 5.16. In the same way let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. you got two different perspectives seemingly going on there. Do it so that your light shines. Like it's bright. Like it draws attention. Do it in such a way that your light shines and draws attention. The difference is... What attention is being drawn to? Because Jesus comes down and says, don't do it so that, so that your personal light is shining and people are praising you for what you're doing. You do it in such a way that, that people don't give credit to you, they give credit to God. That's the key. That's how you bring both of those passages together. I can't be so secretive that nobody knows who to give the credit to. I can't be so secretive because then God misses out on the glory. If it's always completely, always anonymous, then nobody knows that Christians are doing things because of what God's doing. But we don't do it in such a way that we prone ourselves, look at how righteous and sanctified I'm become, and give glory to me. That's what we have to fight in doing this as we begin to give. Acts chapter 5, verse 1, we've looked at this before. Context, Ananias and Sapphira, they're kind of following the pattern of the early church, sell stuff, bring it to the church, bring the money to the church so the church can do stuff with it. And Ananias and Sapphira, we know the story. They, they do things differently. Um, and we can, you know, sometimes people misunderstand the passage and think that they're judged because they didn't give all their money away. That they held some back and that's what they were punished for. That the, the biblical Christian obligation is they had to give all of it. And Peter says something different. He says, verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Peter says, uh, nobody asked you to go sell this piece of land. Nobody said you had to go sell it. And certainly nobody said you had to give all of it when you did sell it. You... Basically, would still be alive five seconds from now had you never sold it. You're not about to die because you, you, you sold your money or you sold your land and didn't give all the money. You're about to die because you're lying and you're promoting your own righteousness right here. You're coming in under the, the deception that you have sold this land and here's every bit of the money. We want to be just like all these other guys in here that are selling everything and giving the stuff to the church. Peter says, we're not interested in that. We're not interested in your money. And that's what's true here at Sovereign Hope. We're not interested in the act of giving. We're not interested in getting to the point where everybody's given a set amount back there. We're interested in the why. We want this church, the money that's been given to you individually, to be used within this church and within your personal life. And it's done in such a way that God gets unbelievable glory from what this church is doing. Even if that means $60 is all that comes in every week. If that's all that we can give, then we want $60 given in such a way that God gets glory. The why is way more important than the actual physical act. 
of you walking back there and dropping money. Secondly, a disciple learns that giving money away is better than receiving money. This is better than the receiving part. It's better than spending it on ourselves. That should be what's happening in our life as we're growing more and more sanctified. Acts chapter 20. Verse 35, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is is more blessed to give than to receive. There's greater blessing in giving than any blessing you could do upon yourself by receiving money and using it for yourself. It's better to give it than to receive it. Thirdly, a disciple learns to give money without the expectation of being paid back. We give it without the expectation of being paid back. Luke chapter 6. Verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. He's saying, look, there's no, there's no special working of the Holy Spirit in people who, let's say Jason, um, let's say Jason's washing machine breaks and doesn't have any money to pay for it. You know, if I go to Jason and say, I'll lend, I'll lend you three, four, five hundred dollars, whatever it takes for you to buy your washing machine. Um, Jason says, great, I'll pay you back next month when I get paid. Great, thanks. I mean, that's, that's a nice gesture. But, but lost people do that, right? Like, lost people help other people that are in need when there's the expectation I'm going to get paid back. But there's a radical change that happens for a Christian who are able to give money in a situation like that. They say, I don't have any money to pay for a washing machine. Great, Jason, here's $500. Go do what you need to do. Um, I don't ever need to see that money again. And that become kind of a norm in our life. That we're seeing people in need and we're just giving it. And there's no discussion about paying it back. There's no discussion about just returning the favor when I, when, when I need it next month. It's just a mindset that, hey, so-and-so's in need and i got some extra money, I'm going to give it. Jesus says that's when like this transition happens where God starts to get glorified because that just doesn't make sense to a lost person. He goes on to say in Luke 14, verse 12. Kind of gives it in a, in a real, he gives his own analogy. He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The concept here is that we're inviting people into a house where we're trying to be hospitable and we're doing it towards people that can give us nothing back. Lost people, make sure you get this, lost people have dinner parties for their friends knowing that they're going to go next month to that person's house and eat their food. 
Lost people have dinner parties with each other knowing that they're going to rotate and eat at someone else's house next month. Christians have dinner parties for people who can't take you to their house next month. Who can't repay you. That's the transition that happens for a disciple. Is we're giving money, we're using money, we're using our resources with people who can't return the favor. We're picking out people who have needs like that. Next, the disciple learns to give first to the spiritual family without neglecting the lost. We give to our spiritual family first. Galatians chapter 6. Verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, sometimes we, we get into this mindset that, that our money is only supposed to be used on lost people. That's the best way to use it. But we're actually told that we're supposed to prioritize people in this room over people outside this room. Make sure you get that. We prioritize people in this room over people outside of this room when it comes to our money. Why? Because we want lost people wanting to be a part of this. If the church prioritized lost people over its own, there's no real concept of I need to come be a part of this. See, we're supposed to be a a body of people who love each other, who live in community, who function like a family. A big family that's open to inviting people and adopting people into it. There ought to be a way that we function where people outside are saying, man, there's some real benefits of being in that group. There's some real, there's some real things that happen there that I long to have in my life. So we take care of lost people. We take care of people in need outside of these walls. Absolutely. And I give you some passages to reference here. Matthew chapter 5. 43 through 48, Romans 12, 20 and 21. Romans 12, 20 and 21. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not ever come by evil, but overcome evil with good. So yes, we take care of lost people, take care of our enemies. But Paul says, you, you especially take care of people in this church. Why? Because we want lost people desiring to be in this. That's what the early church did. They were selling their stuff, not to give it to lost people, but to take care of people in the church family. And it caused what? What was the result of that? They added to their numbers daily. Why? Because we're selling stuff, we're taking care of stuff, we're loving stuff, and people outside who don't have a good concept of love are saying, hey, uh, is there room for me in there? Can I get in on what's going on in there? And they were adding to their numbers daily. A disciple learns to give based on the leading of the heart, not forced standards or percentages. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Each one gives based on what they've decided in their heart. Why are we asking you to anonymously tell us how much you're going to give to this church? So that you can apply this passage to your life. This says to give based on what you've decided. Which means you sit down and figure out what you're going to give. Give as you've decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Kind of shared this with you last week. We're not mandated to give a certain amount under the new covenant. 
Don't impose laws not commanded in Scripture. You will never hear me tell you that you're, you're commanded in Scripture to give 10% of your income to this church. There were things set up in the Old Testament, guidelines, percentages of their crops and their first fruits and, and their sacrifices. All that stuff was built into the Old Covenant. It was commanded in the Old Covenant. Strict guidelines for how to give. You don't find that carried over in the New Testament, which means we don't impose laws that aren't commanded in Scripture. I told you last week the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that we are equipped with new hearts that respond in obedience without the use of a law. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, both of them are prophecies about the New Covenant. God says, in the New Covenant, I'm going to take your old heart out and give you a new heart. Holy Spirit's coming in to live inside of you. That's why there's not 10% guidelines in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, I told you last week, Old Testament, majority of Israel is not saved. Majority of Israel is a hard-necked, stiff, rebellious, stubborn group of people. And when you have rebellious, stiff-necked, immature people, you impose law on them. I told you last week, when you're growing up, you're told by your parents to make the bed. Hopefully by the time you get to be an adult, you just know you should make your bed. And nobody has to come in and tell you to do it. It's the same in the New Covenant. There's a maturing aspect that happens in the New Covenant... Where Jesus says, I mean, you guys should just know that you should give, right? Like, I don't, I don't need to tell you how much. You're just going to know that you're supposed to give. Because the Holy Spirit's living inside of you. And I don't need to tell you. I don't need to make you do it under compulsion or out of guilt. You're going to be cheerful in it. Because you've got a Holy Spirit living inside of you that, that's going to that's gonna push you in that direction. New Covenant. Which means the amount that we're giving away should always be up for discussion. See, it'd be easy if we just said 10% every time. So Tyson comes home and says, Sarah, I got a raise at work this week. So we're just going to continue to give 10% of what, what we're making now. No. There's not a 10% mandate. Which means you're constantly evaluating how much you give. As a raise happens, maybe the percentage that you're giving actually goes up. Because you didn't really need the raise. You were doing fine without the raise. And now you just got more money to give away. It's always up for discussion when we don't impose percentages. Next, the disciple learns to give out of want rather than out of command. 2 Corinthians 8.1 We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Listen to verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This church was begging its leadership to take up money for this purpose. It wasn't leadership coming in and saying, hey, we've identified this need and we, we really need you guys to give this money to this need. It's the opposite in this New Testament church. They actually come to the leadership and say, hey, we've been talking as church members and we are begging you to, to organize this and to take up money for this purpose of this other church that's in need. Begging the leadership to take up money. That's a drastic difference than what we find in most churches where leadership is begging the people to give. 
put in my notes, will Sovereign Hope Church be a place where people beg to give or a place where people are begged to give? We don't want to have to beg. And we're trying to structure our budget in such a way that we don't have to. But not only do we not want to have to beg, we want you guys begging to give. We want there to be such a surplus of money coming in, you're begging us to use it in a certain way. Secondly, will Sovereign Hope Church be a place where people give cheerfully? Because it doesn't feel like a loss. It's not hard. We want to give cheerfully. Regularly, meaning we plan and budget to do it. It's not, eh, I'll give every month if I've got some. No, I'm going to be real intentional. I'm going to be real serious to sit down and budget my money so that I can give. I'm going to do it regularly and sacrificially. Knowing that God provides for us. And then lastly, will Sovereign Hope Church be a known as a church of generous people. Will this, will this church. Will this church have the reputation. Amongst other churches in this area. Amongst the people. In this area. Will we be known as a generous church. Will people even know that we're here. Or will it be so obvious that we're here. Because of our generosity. Both with our time. With our money. With our possessions. Next, the disciple learns to identify needs and gives to eliminate those needs. James 2 and 1 John talk about meeting physical needs of people, which means we have to, to structure our schedule in such a way that we can even find these type of people. Next, the disciple learns to sell luxuries when money isn't available to meet existing needs. Selling luxuries when money isn't available to meet existing needs. Um, Luke 12:33 says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I think it's, I think it's important to balance, like, am I supposed to go sell my possessions right now? I think the act of selling possessions, to some degree, is when there's an absence of money to give. I mean, if you've got a surplus of money that you can give, it may not necessitate you actually selling your house or selling your car, selling your computer. The goal is to get money that can be given away. So it's not a strict prescriptive thing in the New Testament that if you've got possessions, you need to sell them. No, it seems to be that these people are selling possessions so that they have money to give. If you've got money that you can give without selling possessions, then do it. Then do it. Because the goal is to, set, is, to, is to use money to give to people that need it. Okay? So we sell luxuries when money isn't available. But then lastly, I put a disciple learns that giving can involve sharing possessions. It can involve sharing possessions. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's pretty hard to show hospitality if you don't have a location to, to bring people to, an apartment or a house. If we all sold our houses and apartments and whatever else we live in, we can't really show hospitality. So to, to really apply this passage, some of us have to have houses or, or a living location to bring people to. Hebrews 13.2.
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Again, that concept of hospitality. Some of us need to, to get serious about finding a place, finding a place that we can be hospitable with. And I've talked with some of you individually and tried to encourage you to, to really start to think long term about getting out from living with your family, your parents, getting into a location where you can be hospitable. Because for some of us, it would be hard to invite a lot of people over to a house that's not ours where we've got other siblings and other family members living. It doesn't mean that you couldn't do it. And it doesn't mean that everybody in here needs to have a house to be hospitable with. But for some of you, it means thinking down and saying, you know what, Like, it's, it's a lot cheaper to live with my mom and dad. It's a lot cheaper to do this. But I could really do some, some really cool ministry if I think long term about getting out and having a location to bring people, to bring lost people to. You know, as Luke's interacting with, with people at school, you know, he can bring them to his house where his, where his mom and dad are, but, and he's got to work this out on his own. He may have, a, have a, a much greater opportunity for ministry if he had his own place. It's important for us to think through which one's best. Is it better for Luke to save money because of things that he's, he's resolved in his mind, I want to do? Or does it make more sense to get a place? And I challenged you last week when we did our small group questions. Are there things that, that you are in possession of that you can use for ministry that would be more beneficial than selling those things? You know, I wrote down a couple of things. Um, Toby's got a swimming pool at his house. A really nice swimming pool. He has an opportunity where he can use that swimming pool, share it within this church as a means of ministry. He can invite whoever he wants to over to swim during the summertime. People that don't have a swimming pool. People that don't have access to doing that. Hey, why don't you come over and spend the day at my pool? And we'll hang out, we'll talk. And he can use his swimming pool as a means of ministry. I try to use my truck as a means of ministry at times. You know, there, there are always people that need a truck to move stuff. And I try to keep my ear open for someone saying they've got to move something. So I could sell my truck and get like a small car. And, and maybe save on gas and save, save some money. And I could... Use the extra money that I sold my truck from and give it away. Or I can think through and say, you know what, I'm actually going to keep my truck. And I'm actually going to try to use it whenever I hear about people needing to move stuff. So they don't have to rent a truck to do it. You know, Jason could could say, okay, I'm going to go home and sell my kayaks. I'm going to use that money, I'm going to come bring it and put it in the offering plate in the back and, and let Sovereign Hope use it however they want to. Or Jason can say, there's a whole lot of people in here that are never going to buy a kayak. But there are people in here that would love the opportunity to go kayaking. So I'm actually going to hang on to my kayaks and use them as a tool for ministry to invite people who will never have the opportunity to go kayaking any other way. See, that's how we can evaluate. Do I sell my possessions or do I actually have some pretty good stuff that that I could actually use and use as a form of ministry? That's something that you can work through on your own. The application, I must learn to fight the love of money in my own life. To ensure that this church family is cared for properly. We fight the love of money. We'll wrap up with this. 1 Corinthians 5.9 We won't read that whole passage. That passage talks about not spending time with people who are greedy. There's an act of church discipline that seems to be going on there. So we fight greed. I think Colossians 3. That's what I really wanted. Yeah. Colossians 3, 5. 
put to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul says you put it to death. You kill covetousness, just like we talk about with guys a lot of times, and girls as well, to kill uh, sexual temptation in your life. You know, we talk about like getting rid of your computer or putting passwords on your computer so that you can't get to certain things when you're tempted. That same mentality has to get adapted to how we use money. You kill it. You put to death covetousness in your life. Why? So that Acts 4 can happen in sovereign hope. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Early church, we own a lot of stuff and we have a lot of money, but it, 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 we're kind of having this mentality that it belongs to everybody. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So the gospel is being preached. It's not just that people get saved because people are selling stuff. The gospel is being preached... Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it to the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as any had need. I love that there was not a needy person in the church. Nobody had any needs. It's as though everyone kind of says, let's just kind of live on the same level together. Those of us that have a lot, we'll kind of, we'll kind of back it down to kind of get you guys up to, a, to the same level as us. Sold what they had so that there was nobody needy in the church. Some questions to ask yourself over this week. As a married adult, am I budgeting my money biblically so that it is not a point of contention? Stats say that, that money is one of the main things that married couples argue about. Are we budgeting it biblically so that it's not a point of contention in our marriages? As a parent, am I seeking to teach my kids now to spend Save and give in a way that honors God. Some of you give money to your kids. They do chores or you've got an allowance set up. Don't just give them the money, but begin now to teach them how to spend some of it, save some of it, and give some of it. Ingrain these principles in them now. As a single, am I seeking to kill selfishness in my life to prepare for marriage? A lot of you guys don't know who you're going to marry yet, but you are at marriageable age right now or very close to it. Are you doing things now to kill selfishness to prepare for marriage? Because when you get married, most likely money will have to be spent differently. It'll have to be spent differently. Are you making steps now to kill it to prepare for marriage? Am I preparing for marriage by saving what a wonderful thing to come into a marriage with money in your bank account for you and your wife or you and your husband. Instead of racking up debt, spending and, and, and using credit cards in a way where you get stuff that you don't really need. And now your spouse is going to have to endure the consequences of it potentially. Some of you got the opportunity right now to stop that and say, you know what? I do want to get married one day and I'm sure my husband or wife would appreciate it if I didn't bring a lot of debt into it. Do you spend enough time with church people to know that you to know when they have a need to be met? Do we spend enough time together to even know when there's needs in our church that need to be met? How many clothes do I need? How many luxuries can I savor and how many luxuries can I sacrifice 
How much do I need in savings? These are questions that I want you guys wrestling with right now. Is there anything that you cannot afford because as a Christ follower, your money is being spent elsewhere? Is there anything right now that you look at and say, I can't afford this because I follow Jesus and I give money that I would normally spend on this to the gospel? There ought to be things that we would like to purchase or buy or own or do that we cannot do because that money gets used differently. It goes back to what we started with, this idea of reduction. There are things that Ben can't do because he has kids. There are things that he cannot do because that money gets used on kids. Are there things that you cannot do because your money gets spent for Christ, the gospel, and for church to meet the needs of people I'm going to pray for us. You guys are going to come and we're going to sing in response to the word this morning. Um, we're going to worship. I encourage you to listen to the lyrics as we sing this morning. Because these lyrics are designed to reinforce what we are learning in scripture. So I encourage you to focus in on what we're singing this morning. That you would sing and this, this would be a true thing that's going on in your heart. And if these lyrics aren't true, that if need be, you don't sing and you spend this time in prayer. Praying and saying, God, I can't sing this right now. Because you're not sufficient for me right now. You're not good enough for me. The things of this world are, are occupying my, my time and my interests. If that's the case, then spend this time in prayer. Don't sing, that some, don't sing about something that's not true. But if, you, but if you've been experiencing conviction over these past few weeks, or just simply just being called to reevaluate how you're doing stuff, and you're wrestling with some of these questions. And this becomes an opportunity to reinforce this as we sing and worship this morning. As we acknowledge through the avenue of song that Christ is everything that we need. He's all sufficient. He provides for us. He's better than anything this world has to offer. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. For it's the gospel that makes everything that we're talking about this morning possible. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, who... Who gave to the point of death for our need. Who sacrificed his life. Who sacrificed everything that this world could have offered him for our salvation. And God, we know that it's only because of the gospel that we can even begin to give our money in a way that honors you. So God, I pray that you would continue to convict us, to challenge us with these questions. That we would really strive to understand how we can use our money in a way that honors you. That we would be disciplined enough to evaluate it, to budget, to plan, to allow the Holy Spirit to, to work in our hearts so that we can decide what to give. And so that we can give cheerfully, not under compulsion. We thank you that we're in the new covenant with the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. We thank you for the absence of law. That you've given us the freedom to love and serve you as we walk in the Spirit. But God, help us to walk in the Spirit and not gratify the desires of our flesh. Pray that we, you would be honored as we sing and honor you this morning with our lips. That it would truly be a reflection of what's going on in our heart. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.